Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. My name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast of its deep dives into true crime. If you're new here, When Killers Get Caught is a three-part podcast where we discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us this week. Then I'll lead you down the path of a well-known or lesser-known killer, discuss their childhood lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then Brian will finish off our episode with a paranormal palate cleanser about some sort of creepy thing he's got in his mind. (laughs) And before we jump into This Week in True Crime, I just want to remind you all that we do still have hats and mugs and t-shirts and hoodies. We do have some new things that will be limited edition dropping in April. But for now, if you just want some basic stuff with my face or Brian's face on it, uh, we got that for (laughs) you. And this week in true crime, uh, actually, this is really interesting to me. This isn't like good or a bad story, not, you know, upsetting or not upsetting. But uh, Texas police were able to arrest a 60-year-old man in a killing from 38 years ago using the same technology that they used to identify the Golden State Killer. So I thought that was pretty cool. And if anyone remembers, the Golden State Killer was only captured a couple years ago. I don't mm. think he was even sentenced till, till 2019 or 2020. So it's just still pretty recent. But uh, the case was a girl by the name of Mary Jane Thompson. She was 21 and she was found dead in Dallas in 1984. And it remained mainly a cold case uh, until a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Uh, Edward Morgan was arrested and charged with capital murder remaining to Mary's death. She was assaulted or physically assaulted and murdered. The Dallas Police Department reopened the case in 2009 and began conducting DNA testing using samples that they had originally collected from her autopsy. The DNA belonging to a man was identified like they could tell it had a distinctive DNA pattern. But they didn't okay. have anybody in the system yet. Okay. And so the case went cold again. And then they reopened it in 2018 to try a new type of testing, which was the same one that they had used to identify Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. He ended up uh, pleading guilty in 2020 to a string of rapes and murders that went back to 1970s. He started out as just a, they called him, I believe, the Vassalia Rapist. And Oof. he would assault people and, like, leave their televisions on. It was a very weird, like, one day I'll do a full workup of him, but it's a lot of stuff. He had a very long career doing multiple things. But ultimately, they don't. the police haven't released how they found Morgan as a suspect. But they were able to use the same kind of DNA testing. So generally it says uh, testing typically involves comparing DNA samples to ancestry or genealogy databases when a match doesn't appear in the FBI system. And so that's what they use here. So essentially, when you take those DNA tests to figure <laughs> out if you're one 32nd Cherokee, oh my God. you might be putting <laughs> DNA into a system that might help, you know, get your grandpa uh, charged with a murder. It's not you might. You are. You definitely are. (laughs) There's a reason why I've never done one. I just don't like the fact that the feds can just come in and be like, we need that DNA. Give it to us. Mm -hmm. Even though there's nobody like I think like I know I haven't committed a murder. And truly, if you're related to me and you committed a murder, I don't care. 
Like, ah, it's your fault. Um, I just hate the idea that someone can just demand my genetic material without my permission. Mm. And when you sign that little thing, when you send your swab in, that's mm. what's in the fine print, that yep. this information can be recalled by uh, federal agents should they need it. Yeah. But that is why they found this man. Hmm. Somebody wanted to know if they were, if their great, 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 great grandma um, was black. And <laughs> <laughs> they did that test. Uh, and his DNA popped up. Uh, yep, yep, that. yep. They've found a lot, of, they've been finding a lot of people through this now recently. Uh, probably the one that I think is still the funniest is uh, you remember Dennis Rader, the BTK killer? Mm, of course. How when we were in high school, they were like, he just suddenly popped back up and was like, ah, I'm still here. You guys suck. You never found me. Mm-hmm. Well, when they did find him, they didn't have his DNA on file and they couldn't force him to give it yet. They ended up doing, um, <laughs> they ended up getting his daughter's pap smear DNA oh my God, from yeah. the doctors and connecting that to DNA from the crime scene. And it was a match saying that most definitely someone related to the Raiders did those crimes. Mm. I was like, wow, they went to the doctor's office and we're like, we just need these results. We just need those cells for a second. Yep. We need Uh, the cells. I know you need to know if you had some uh, abnormal cells, girl, (laughs) but we need to know if these cells belong to your daddy. Mm -mm. Yeah. I always thought that was weird, but I was like creative. Yeah, I guess. It's, it's I a, guess. Anything to find a bad guy. That's a good workaround. Hmm. Okay. So, you're not going to like this story. <laughs> All right, what's up? Is it about uh, weird aliens? People pretending that the Earth is flat? Or it's Kala? No, not today. What? Oh, because those things make me angry. <laughs> so, in Utah... Mm-hmm. A guy got upset mm-hmm. over his McDonald's order. Uh, they got it wrong. You know, like, you know. How, as no, they do. No, yeah. Like, as a normal person would get up, like, a little, you know, annoyed that their order was, you know, incorrect at a McDonald's. And they're like, yo, I ordered this. You put it on the screen. And it was the same on the screen. Why is it not the same in my hand right now? <laughs> <clears throat> I just remembered to turn the lights on so people could see me. Oh my god. So he gets upset and he um he instead of like yelling well he yelled at, at the at the cashier <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> he yelled at the cashier and he also um pulled out a gun on the cashier <clears throat> at the drive thru window. <clears throat> okay. And so the cashier's like, Okay, okay, hold on. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna fix this. But you need to pull off into one of our, you know, the, those, those specified, yeah, those specified parking spaces for you know people so that they fix their food. So he does this, <clears throat> and the cashier calls the cops. Of, of course. course, of course, of course. Um, cops come, and you know he's not compliant. Of course, so they have to pull him out of the car. Um. Unbeknownst to the cops, there are two children in the backseat. There's a four-year-old and a three-year-old in the backseat. Um, apparently, 
before like when like before the cops pulled him out of the car um he told the four-year-old to to shoot one of the cops um so the four-year-old definitely picked up so the guy had the gun so you know he dropped the gun the four-year-old picked the gun up and the four-year-old tries to fire at a cop um poor baby as soon as like the cop saw the kid with the gun he's like kid because you know he saw the gun and then you know everybody's like you know how cops are and they're like you know you're pointing a gun at me i'm gonna point a gun back at you put the gun down and he's like oh no it's a kid it's a kid wait stop um but the kid fires, and then the cop, like, as soon as the kid fires the gun, the cop, like, smacks the gun out of his hand, so oh, it, like, diverts good. the bullet away from him. Yeah. Um, it's just a baby. He don't understand. But, but, like, the dad told the kid to, like, shoot that fucking cop. Wow. He, like, he told him to shoot what the cop. What a coward. Why don't you do it yourself, buddy? Like, exactly. You, you got the balls over here. Uh, but... Yeah, no, it, it just awful. It just like yeah, it just struck a nerve for me because it's like you got a, a three year old and four year old in your backseat and you're gonna That's sad. What kind of parent are you? Yeah, that's it's, sad. Yeah. Um so that's why I said you weren't gonna like it. It's not even <laughs> not liking it, it's just sad. I feel yeah. bad for this but, child. Um, yeah. That's all I have for the story. There's not really much after that. <laughs> It's just, you know, the cops were just shocked that, you know. Yeah. That this happened. But yeah. It's it's, it's it was crazy and I was like, I got to I got to tell the story. <laughs> yeah, wow, I didn't see that one. I saw a a situation where a person got mad at a McDonald's person and shot them multiple times. That was in the news recently. Mm. Yeah. Honestly, there have been multiple McDonald's absolute craziness responses. This is why Wendy's has not opened up the floor. You can't go into a Wendy's right now because it's only drive through And they need bulletproof glass now in all these places. They do. People are crazy out here for the food. Outlandish. Just wow. But anyway, uh, in our last week of the month of love, uh, this week's couple was requested months ago, and I ended up having to take some extra time to really research because there's a lot of dissenting opinions about what happened. And that's partially because uh, the guy involved just told a lot of different stories. Uh, Do you know who Charles Starkweather is? No. Well, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fagate are known to be the first spree killers in U.S. history uh, who killed 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming from December 1957 to January 1958. In fact, 10 of those were between the week of January 21st and January 29th when they were caught. And the arguments around this case are really about Charles's 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol, and if she was a willing participant in these murders or not. In fact, some people refer to Carol as Charles' 12th victim. 
So I spent a lot of extra time here looking up uh, transcripts and every book I could rent from the library or order about these two to see what I could kind of sort through and try and understand how a jury found a 14-year-old girl guilty of murder. Mm. Now, I know in modern era, this was pretty common. Like, we've got kids who try and kill their parents and stuff like that all the time now. But this is a different era. And, well, (laughs) you'll figure out what my opinion is on this situation by the end. But before we get into all that, we'll do like we always do. And we'll start at the beginning with Charles. Charles Raymond Starkweather, born in Lincoln, Nebraska, November 24th, 1938, to Guy and Helen Starkweather. He was number three in a family that ended up with seven kids eventually. Now, the Starkweathers can be traced back to 1640, when Robert Starkweather immigrated to the U.S. from the Isle of Man and the Irish Sea and settled in Roxbury, Massachusetts. The Starkweathers fought during the Revolutionary War. One was a colonel who commanded the first regiment of soldiers to leave Wisconsin and help during the Civil War. That one is in a mural in Madison, Wisconsin, in the executive chambers at the state capitol. Uh, then we have Starkweather, North Dakota, which is named after a settler related to Charles. Detroit, Michigan, and Cleveland, Ohio have streets named after a noteworthy Starkweather in American history. I say all this to tell you that there was not a time in this family's history where they weren't all wonderful people who did all they could for their community. Right. So so. we are coming from war heroes and community leaders to a murderous 19-year-old. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, he was 19. (laughs) God. Oh, they're both real young. Oh, my God. Okay. But we're going to start with his childhood. Like I said, he was one of seven kids. His dad was known (laughs) as like a handsome guy who was good at almost everything he touched. His mom was very much the emotional and financial backbone of the family, especially after Helen had to start working in 1946 because Guy developed arthritis and couldn't do his job as a carpenter. But before then, uh, you know, that he was a carpenter, that job that even now pays really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the children all seemed very happy, very well behaved. Neighbors never reported any negative things about them. Almost every day when a guy came home from work, they'd all rush out to greet him. Guy and Helen were known to be amazing neighbors who cared for sick and infirmed other neighbors. They all lived in this small one-story white house with a large porch, had a big yard, a bunch of cottonwood trees. Charlie, as he was called, had a big imagination. He made up loads of fantasy games with his siblings and their own little tiny tree grove. He and his older brother, Leonard, and Rodney, his younger brother, would play cowboys and Indians. When the older boys went off to school and he was still pre-K age, he would feed the chickens that his mom kept in the backyard, helped his mom can vegetables from their garden. On the weekend, Guy took the kids on little adventures, like to the zoo or camping. Charlie grew up so much like many other kids, thinking his dad was invincible, like he was almost a superhero. Mm -hmm. Did your shoe break? Dad fixed it. Roof has a leak? Dad fixed it. Did he also run a a third bakery business? Yes, he did that too. Charlie very much in his early childhood lived like the perfect life when he was around his family. It wasn't until he got to school that things changed. Even at about six years old, he did not like school. Uh, But Nebraska demands all kids had to attend until 16. Hmm. He didn't have many friends. Most of the kids ignored him. It was at school that he realized he wasn't super normal. He had a speech impediment. He walked kind of bow-legged. 
Now, Charles, Charlie tells this story later on in his life that he says on his first day to school, he tried to tell the kids about how he lived in a big white house and canned vegetables with his mom. And all the kids laughed at him because of how he said the word. When he, oh, yeah. yeah. Then when he said when he went into the playhouse at recess, all the other kids left him. When it was time for gym class and they played soccer, no one picked him, even though it was his favorite game that he played with his brothers. They all thought he couldn't play because uh, he was bow-legged. And then he said when it was time to walk home, they followed him and yelled, bow-legged, red-headed woodpecker. And then he cried and cried. And then when he got to an intersection, the kids pushed him in front of a car. Oh, my God. What the hell? He says that he remembered lying in the street looking at the driver who had wide eyes and the kids were sitting on the sidewalk mocking him and one of them went over to him and grabbed the paper that he had drawn a picture for his mom and ripped it up. Now, a lot of historians don't believe this happened. That's terrible. It seems like it's a lot for kids who had no idea who you were. Right on the first day of day. <laughs> and, and, okay, so there's this author named James Reinhardt. He's the author of The Murderous Trail of Charles Starkweather. And James Reinhardt went back to Nebraska. Like, when, like, it wasn't very long after all these crimes happened. And interviewed mm. roughly everybody that Charlie had contact with. And his teachers were like, we have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and Reinhardt thinks well, that... Teachers may not, because sometimes, you know, teachers are out of the loop when it comes to kids being bullied and stuff like that. But. I don't know. But so here's the thing. So the teachers were the teachers who talked to Reinhardt said that he had really terrible self-esteem and they tried their best to help him. They admitted that, yes, he did get bullied a little bit, but they would try and give him like special jobs in the classroom. You know how in kindergarten you get like classroom jobs and stuff Mm -hmm. so he could help them and feel like important and that he was a really good artist and that the staff tried to encourage his talent in art but that he was miserable in school and it wasn't entirely because of all of his classmates like he just hated not just school but like everything he developed this like anger as a child He was angry at the world. He was angry at the other kids. You know, in kindergarten, it was because he was bow-legged. And after, you know, kindergarten, he started fighting instead of crying. And he blamed that on why he was miserable. In fact, within a year, it was Charlie who was the bully. And he justified it by saying that they all deserved it. Hmm. But eventually, he admitted, I began to love fighting and I would walk a mile just to fight someone. He trusted no one even the teachers who were exceptionally kind to him. And he actually spoke to Reinhardt before he was executed saying, Oh yeah, she would, this one teacher would snap her fingers at other children. Uh, but I was the one she didn't like. And I knowed even when the teachers talked nice to me, it was just words. And this was the opinion about one of the teachers that was considered to be the nicest person in the school, mm-hmm. like one of the best people. And he was like, I don't care that she was nice to me. They're all words. They're liars. How do you have that opinion about education at second grade, first grade? Another thing. Yeah. Well, another thing that happened during 
his adolescence, which is why I honestly, they don't do this anymore and they shouldn't. But they gave him an IQ test when he was about eight or nine years old. He came in at an 86. Now, the expectation when a child is around that age range is anywhere between 90 to 110. So he was only a few points below average. But that just proved to Charlie that school was the worst and he was stupid and he didn't want to be there. Mm. So, like, things were happening that were further uh, confirming his feelings about why this place sucked. He's pretty much a really lonely, angry kid, and he started to lose himself in comic books, specifically the ones where the heroes used knives. He loved mobsters, cowboys, uh, those kinds of TV shows. He loved guns. Even into his adulthood, he believed that he'd been, been born at the wrong time. And if he had been alive during the era of cowboys, people would have understood him better. From a very young age, he had a very weird fantasy world. He used to tell people stories about how he was from like a different time or another state. I mean, that's just interesting and creative. Like it's interesting creative when you're seven. It's not mm. interesting and creative <laughs> when you're 19. Oh. And you're telling people that you came from Texas and you used to be a sheriff. Never mind. Right. And this is like what a lot of people who discuss like deviant behavior talk about like this this very deep fantasy life and indulging in said fantasy life because you don't like regular life. Mm -hmm. And it's peculiar because now we have video games. Now we have a plethora of films and other things you can really delve into. You can have somebody. Yeah. You can have somebody who spends, you know, 10 hours a day building Lego constructions or Minecraft all damn day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, is this is this a, a weird thing? Because these people in other eras didn't have the kinds of things that we use for escapism then. But is it the escapism that's the problem? Hmm. Because I did indeed just spend like 120 hours over the last two weeks playing Cyberpunk 2077. I was uh. sad. And I immersed myself in a fun world. But at some point, you got to get back to real life. Yeah, yeah. Now, (sighs) one of Charlie's teachers spoke to Reinhardt, and she was just like, nah, I don't think he was that nice of a kid. She's like, I know other people talk to you about how he was a nice kid, but honestly, she said that he was a cold and unfeeling child, and she based this off of the fact that one day she kind of walked up on a fight that had just ended and they were on a crushed gravel driveway near the school. Mm-hmm. So they weren't on school grounds, which is why she couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but as she walked up on it, the loser of the fight was this bigger boy. And Charlie had like ground his face into the gravel and he was just bleeding and yeah. sobbing. That's terrible. And she remembers looking at Charlie and he was just staring like. What? Blank. <laughs> like what? And she was just like, that's really weird because most kids, when they do something that hurts other people, recognize there's something there. There's adrenaline. There's excitement. There's something not just dead eyes. Just nothing. Uh Well, after that, Charlie began failing school and nobody could really reach him. 
Uh, They tried to push him through certain grades. That didn't work. Ultimately, they ended up kicking him out of Irving Middle School. He was known as the meanest, toughest kid in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they sent him to Everett Junior High, where he finally met a real friend, Bob Von Bush, spelt like, you know, Bush Spears. Mm-hmm. Bob was a real big kid with the same kind of reputation as Charlie. And the first time they met, they literally beat on each other until they both got too tired. And instead of it creating a rivalry, they were like, respect. <laughs> okay, that's, that's something. Now, Bob said this about his best friend later in life. Charlie could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was one big joke to him. But he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street that was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to size. But I didn't think too much of it at the time. We were all a little like that then. We all had a lot of growing up to do. Now, Charlie hit puberty and became a good-looking young man, just like his dad. He wore blue jeans and cowboy boots and a black leather jacket, and he wore a ducktail in his hair, which was the style at the time. Not okay. today, but it was the cool guy look back in, like, the 40s. Ducktails. Mm-hmm. And, uh, honestly, he smoked cool cigarettes, and a bunch of the young girls said he looked like James Dean. And, like, I kind of looked at the picture. I looked at the pictures of him, and I was like, I see it. Okay. okay. Um, he did have that like. He he definitely perfected that old timey cowboy look. That was his aesthetic. Now he was a part of a group of boys who called themselves the Leather Jackets, and they would go downtown on the weekend to fight with another group of boys called the Levi Jackets. Oh my god! <laughs> now even though they called themselves gangs, here's what they would do. They would go downtown and one of them would be on one side of the street and the other group would be on the other side of the street and they would just talk trash and then kind of like, yes. And they would do that for hours. Kind of like, you know, egging other people on like, why don't you come over here then? (laughs) Was it just like a giant roasting session? It was just like, oh, you got something to say. Why don't you come to our side of the street? So we'll jump you. And like nobody ever came to the other side of the street. Then they would get tired of doing that and go to the Acme Chili Parlor and eat chili and drink malt milkshakes. Like, eh, forget about it. And then they'd walk away. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Got it. <laughs> Occasionally, they would also go to the parking lot at Capitol Beach and they would play chicken with cars. And you know what that game is. Mm-hmm. Two people drive directly at each other and whoever swerves first loses. Little chicken. Yes. Charlie never swerved. Charlie was ready to hit them kids so he always won so charlie and bob really liked stealing cars and stripping them for fun they bought together a 1941 four to take trips to kansas where they could buy 3.2 percent beer and bring it back to nebraska because even though prohibition was over a lot of states still banned it but you could buy beer if it was 3.2 percent alcohol or lower That's like in Pennsylvania, how we can buy beer and wine coolers from the gas station because it's below 40 proof. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we got to go to a liquor store to get the hardcore stuff. Yes, the good stuff. (laughs) Now, Charlie (laughs) even got a girlfriend at his new school. That girl later told folks that she never heard him swear, smoke, or drink. He never tried to put a move on her, and he even went to church with her sometimes. She thought he was, like, the best boy she'd ever met, and she was absolutely confused to find out all the stuff that he was talking after he got 
caught. <laughs> but Charlie stays in school until 16, where he leaves and begins working at the Western Newspaper Union on October 5th, 1955, where he was paid 85 cents an hour to bail paper, which I learned means shred it. Now, I'm not sure if they were using paper bailer machines or he just had to load them up or he was shredding them by hands, but it was a job and he was making money. So he's pretty cool about it. Yeah. He was eventually able to buy himself a 1949 Ford of his own and he'd buy the parts to improve it. And he made it super fast. He bought a 22 rifle, a 410 gauge shotgun, a 32 revolver, and he'd got into the woods and practice on small animals. Uh-huh. Not good. Nah, Not good. but he did become a really good shot. <clears throat> Now, work became an issue because Charlie felt like he was smart, but the job didn't think he was worth giving him a raise, and they would have him train other people who had gone to college, and those folks would pass him, and he said that no one ever praised him at work, and it made them hate him. This was about Mm. the time that Charlie started dreaming about death. He was about 17. He believed that death was courting him, that she had marked him to have a short life. He had dreams about her showing up, telling him to not be afraid of the coffin. He'd get in it, and then it would sail into a giant fire. He said that the the flames were beautiful, and then he would wake up. He would go on to tell James Reinhardt that he saw these delusions in the daytime, too. He said he would wake up before dawn, look out his window, and there was death staring at him. He said that death looked like half human and half bear, but she had no neck or arms or ears. And that he also said that sometimes he would hear a loud, sharp whistle in the wind and he knew that she was calling him. Oh my God. So bad. It's so bad. Death so metal, was a cryptid. It's so metal. Death, it's so... <laughs> death was a cryptid, apparently, according to really? Charlie. Oh my God. And then just the flames. And I was like, oh, so you're going to hell. Got it. Got yeah, it. I mean, he said he didn't fear death, though, because he knew the world on the other side couldn't be as bad as this one. Charlie felt like he was denied the better things in life. And he knew he was never going to experience a high class restaurant or see a Yankees game or go to any of the wonderful places that the world had to tell him about. Charlie really only found his pride in being a great shooter, but like he would go hunting with people. And he would take an automatic rifle and they'd be like, he shoots and then he just keeps shooting until there's nothing, no bullets left. And sometimes he would just shoot into the wild with no target until his gun was empty. Mm. I like it. So let's switch gears. We're going to talk about Carol Ann Fagate, born July 30th, 1943, to her mother, Velda Fagate, and her father, William. She had two sisters, uh, Barbara and eventually Betty Jean. But Betty Jean doesn't get born until a lot later. Dad isn't mentioned a whole lot by name in many books because I found that he was a real heavy drinker who frequently wasted all of his family's money on alcohol. Mm. They often had to move due to being evicted because of William's drinking habits. And like when I say they were poor, I mean, they were so poor, the girls didn't have any toys. And of course, Velda didn't know he was this bad when they dated. And once they were married, she wouldn't divorce him because she was a devout Christian. She was part of the Church of Nazarene who followed Jesus's part of the Bible pretty intensely. So Velda was good to do her best to make this work. 
She was an optimist, but she was also very practical. Um, the girls did not grow up believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. She knew before Barbara was even born that William's drinking was going to keep them from even the basic necessities. So there was no way she was going to let these girls hope for presents and chocolates knowing they were never going to be there. William was an odd man and Velda had overlooked some obvious red flags. He never talked about his mother or father. There were no fagates in Nebraska at all. Hmm. Now, sober William was the life of the party. He did magic tricks like pulling a penny out of your ear. He would sit and play guitar all night. One of his favorite things to do was make up really raunchy songs to make the little, his daughters laugh. And then Velda would chastise him for making songs about light and farts on fire. <laughs> I'm a child. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when he was drunk, though, he was a really terrible man. He had barbs for anyone who crossed him, and Velda found herself relieved when he didn't come home from Bender's because she knew he was probably in jail and she'd have a day of quiet and relief. Mm-hmm. Carol and Barbara learned to rely only on their mother, and they adored her. She was always up before them, uh, smiling, ready for the day. She sat by them as they went to sleep every night. When the girls took naps in the middle of the day, Velda was there when they wake up woke up and later on when they came home from school she was always at the door waiting for them the only time carol and barbara couldn't be near their mother was when william got violent and velda locked them in their closet to protect them it was there the girls cried for their mother they worried for her they listened to him scream and call her names trash the house once he was gone velda would open up the door and they'd hug her mom and their mom and make sure she was okay she'd tell them they're all right and then help them get back in the bed and go to sleep Eventually, when Carol uh, was four and Barbara was seven, Velda had to pack up and move again with William. With the support of her mother, Pansy Street, they all moved to this tenement house run by a really nice landlady named May Holly. Pansy lived there in a unit, too, which allowed the girls to see their grandmother whenever they wanted, which helped because Velda had started to try and do a little jobs here and there to balance out William's wastefulness. The girls kind of got a fun extended family of other kids who lived in the building. They made friends. Pansy tried to teach Carol all sorts of things while Barbara was in school, but Carol did not take well to anything that took more than five minutes to learn. <laughs> yeah, Pansy and Carol butted heads, but Pansy always told her, I love you, Carol Ann, even though I may not like how you behave. Uh, one of the things that Carol learned from her dad was cursing. And William thought it was hilarious, but both Pansy and Velda hated it. They managed to get her to only do it at home, but pretty much everybody in the community found out that Carol wore like a sailor when she was five and ran out into the street and got hit by a truck. The man oh, no. who was in the truck was like, don't move. And she rolled out from under his truck, balled her tiny little fist. She's only five years old and yells, you dirty goddamn son of a bitch truck driver. You run me over. <laughs> this was everybody saw. She was rushed to the hospital, no broken bones, but she was pretty black and blue and sore the following day. Carol was like, can I still go to church? And her mom was like, "Yeah, I think you you sure (laughs) you want to go to church? Like when her mom was brushing her hair, like a chunk of her hair fell out. And so her mom was like, you need to heal. But Carol Mm. was like, I want to go to church and get milk and cookies. And Velda was like, listen, they might not give you milk and cookies because everybody heard you swear yesterday. Yeah. Well, when Carol came home, she was like, not only did I get milk and cookies, I got double. 
And apparently the pastor had made a sermon about Carol, about how through the grace of God, you can survive anything. Okay. So he had used her for the sermon that week. Oh my God. <laughs> of course. Um, the only person the girls didn't really like was their great grandma Hitchcock um, because they thought she was a witch. She lives in this big house in Havelock, which is like kind of in the suburbs. She wore those large, long black dresses and she talked about ghosts. And the girls didn't like visiting her because as soon as she got there, Grandma Hitchcock would present them with these bags of herbs and tobacco and make them wear them around their neck while they were there. Yeah, it's warden charms. I was like, yo, I was like, Grandma Hitchcock might actually really be a witch. Um, and, and she was I, giving I, y'all charms to protect you. I'm just saying. She definitely was. And well, I love as her. soon as they left her house, they would throw them in the bushes. They didn't want to wear oh, them. They God. said they stank. But life at the tenement house was pretty great. Uh, they lived near the state theater. They would get to go on weekends. They could turn in five milk carton tops and you got to see a movie for free. Ooh. Things came to a head one weekend in almost almost in winter William was home and he was wasted and the girls were hiding in the closet but they heard a scream and a thud and they kind of came out of the closet and they saw William choking Velda Barbara grabbed a butcher knife and attempted to stab her father while Carol grabbed a hammer and tried to hit his toes then Pansy came bursting through the door, grabbed the knife out of Barbara's hands, and William ran. The four women kind of held each other, and finally Velda says, that does it. He goes. Which, coincidentally, a couple weeks later, they had their first Christmas with a real tree and everything. Um, it was about a week after the attack when the girls spent like hours making decorations for the tree. William showed up, spoke to no one packed up everything in 10 minutes and then rushed out of the apartment, knocking the tree over. You son of a bitch. Carol watched him leave out of the window and she saw him get into a cab with a woman. And that was the last time she saw him as a little girl. Velda knew she wasn't going to get a dime out of money of from William. So she took a full-time job. The girls spent their time with Aunt Lola, uh, May, and Mr. Mrs. Ortiz. Uh, Mrs. Ortiz had a daughter that was their age and that was when both Pansy and Velda were working full time this kind of group of women in the house they lived together, they cooked together, did the dishes washed their clothes, cleaned together um, Velda began to find fun in doing puzzles when the girls were in bed at night uh, that was when Marion Bartlett entered their lives he's in his 50s and a World War II vet and he and Velda worked together there was a 20-year age gap, but they loved each other. They fell, like, real quick. And Marion moved in. It was a little crowded. But mm -hmm. he very quickly got used to these hyper little girls. And he treated Velda like gold. He loved his stepdaughters very much. And he called them his daughters from the start. In fact, when Carol, like, right after he moved in, Carol was about 11 years old. And she really tried it with him. There was a mop in the kitchen, like a dust mop on the counter. And he was like, hey, you could put that away. And she was like, why don't you put it away your damn self? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he he kind of nipped that in the bud he also wasn't really fond of little girls wearing makeup or eating lots of sweets even though carol and barb objected to it they listened on february 11th 1955 velda had her third child betty jean bartlett and everybody was so excited 
Carol called her Patty because she thought that was a better name for the child. <laughs> and so when she came home from school, she would be like, Patty! And Betty Jean would just laugh. Um, the family moved to Belmont Street shortly after Betty Jean was born. It was a nice house, but it only had one bedroom originally. And there was no plumbing inside. Uh, Barb and Carol shared the bedroom and the parents slept in the living room. Eventually, Marion would add a master bedroom onto the house as well as a bathroom. He even bought them a television, which the girls Ooh. thought was awesome. That is awesome. The first summer they lived time. there, they canned vegetables that they grew. They had chickens and hens. Uh, they did have a rooster at one point, but uh, whenever it was mating time, he got real aggressive. And mm. eventually Velda um, cooked him because she was tired of getting pecked by the, the, the male rooster. Yeah, makes sense. Things were going exceptionally well, and then that year, William popped up. And he invited Barb and Carol to meet his new wife named Dot. They did not want to go. But Velda was like, you have to go talk to your father. So okay. Marion drove Barb, Carol, and Betty Jean over to the house and was like, I'll be back at 4 p.m. sharp. It was a very long day. Because mm. Barb and Carol didn't really remember him outside of, like, trauma and they pretty much ignored him and played with Betty Jean. And they would like have her be crawling on the table. And she's like, if you fall, I'm not going to get you. And then Betty Jean would crawl off the table. And of course, Carol would catch her. Um, and they pretty much played that game for like hours oh <laughs> and God. ignored their dad. And when Marion tooted the horn at 4 p.m., William was like, hey, do you want to live with us? And Carol said, hell no. And they ran out the door. Hell <laughs> <laughs> no, it was boring at your house. <laughs> Um, things went pretty well for the next two years. Nothing too major in terms of life unsettling moments. <laughs> Barbara turned 16 in 1956 and she got a baby, a job babysitting for five kids who lived down the street. She had a friend named Barbara Griggs who was dating Rodney Starkweather. Ooh. Rodney that introduced Barbara to his brother, Charlie. And they would all hang out around the Grigg house and go to movies. <clears throat> and one day, Charlie brought his friend Bob over. And while Bob and Barb connected but bob was like uh this kind of sucks that i'm sort of stealing you from my friend i don't know if he likes you but like y'all were hanging out so then barbara came up with the idea to introduce 18 year old charlie to 13 year old carol ann and if the two liked each other then they could all go on double dates together and it would be okay for bob and barb to date oh okay I, I got you there. Picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> so they set up this blind date and everybody was going to go out on uh, November of 1956. Now, uh, ba Barbara was like, okay, come over one night and then my parents can meet everybody. Carol. Now, Bob and, and Barb had already kind of been dating. So when Carol saw them at the door, she was like, oh, bet. Cool. Whenever Bob comes over, I get to go hang out with the big kids. Now, the boys were like, hey, can we take the girls to this local burger joint? It's called Renza's. And even though they had already eaten, Velda, now Mrs. Bartlett, was like, fine, okay. They all went out. Carol talked to Charlie. He was very shy. They hit it off, though. She thought he was super cool in his black leather jacket and cowboy boots. And they went out a bunch of times. And even though Marion thought Charlie was incredibly too much old, he was way too old for his daughter, Velda was like, I feel okay with this because they're never alone. They're always with Bob and Barb. 
So what? She's like, there won't be any funny business because they never get any chance to be alone with each other. They're all children. They're children. (laughs) Children get into trouble all the damn time. Well, Charlie had taken his gang chicken game to a new level. And now he was participating in Demolition Derby. And so they would go to his, like, events. And Carol would scream in the stands. And she thought this was very exciting. And Charlie kind of developed a weird sweetness towards Carol. And Carol would fuss over him when he got hurt at work or when he would put himself down about being short. And she was like, well, you're the right height for me. Oh, you short king. (laughs) He was like 5'6". Charlie bought her little gifts and things. And Carol sort of let the love she developed for Charlie replace the hole in her heart that William had made. Um, Now, Charlie never tried anything farther than a kiss, according to his friend Bob, and also according to Carol, except for that one other time that I'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Now, these weren't exactly the sexy dates of the modern era. The group just hung out, went to movies, dinner, and derby. Charlie's family wasn't really into him dating a girl too young either. And his dad was like, don't be messing around with young girls. So February 14th, 1957, Bob and Barbara get married in Council Bluffs, Iowa, because it is you are not allowed to get married under 18 in Nebraska. So they went to another state. Okay. Velda wasn't excited about it, but Bob had a steady job as a garbage collector. They moved into the same tenement house that they used to live in, uh, owned by May Holly. Carol took over the babysitting gig, which was 4 to 9 p.m. every Monday through Friday. Uh, by spring, Barb was pregnant and everybody was happy, except for Marion, who was like, I don't really, like, why is this happening so fast? <laughs> and so he was like, listen, Carol, go to college. You want to be a nurse. Don't follow in your sister's footsteps. You don't got to have a baby at 16, even if you do have a husband. Now, by July of 57, Charlie had quit his job at the newspaper company. And now Marion was sure he wasn't a good boyfriend because the dude didn't even have a job anymore. Especially one time he came back to the house and saw Carol like bandaging his face. And he was just like, yeah, that's because he'd be out getting in fights. Not a good boyfriend. This is very true. But Marion knew he was outnumbered in the debate. So he just like kept an eye on things. He figured Carol's working. Listen, Carol's going to school for eight hours a day. Then she's working for five hours, five days a week. And she watches her sister and she helps her mom. And she reads comics. She has a lot of varied interests. And Charlie comes to the house to hang out with her. So I can watch things. Yeah. Keep an eye on everything. Now, Carol was happy beyond belief. She was going to be excited. She was going to become an aunt. She had friends, a cute boyfriend. She had a job. She felt so grown up. And Marion was the best substitute for a dad that a girl could ask for. As the fall came in 57, Charlie got a job at the garbage company with his brother, Rodney. Carol started the eighth grade at Whittier Junior High School. There was a small accident where Carol got in a car accident driving Charlie's car home from school. He kind of gave it to her because, like, he was always giving her things. Mm-hmm. Um, he definitely equated love with physical goods. And he would, like, buy her all sorts of stuff. And she was just like, I don't need all this. He's like, whatever, drive my car home. Oh, my God. Well, the problem is, Marion, <laughs> like, she was terrified. And um, she actually ended up walking home, like, crying. And Bob saw her and picked her up and drove her home. 
And she was like, I can't tell Marion. He's going to be so upset with me. I'm not even supposed to be driving. And Bob went in and told Marion what happened. And Marion went out and like hugged her and was like, you're okay. You're fine. I don't care about the car. It's not even my car. <laughs> However, Guy Starkweather had helped Charlie co-sign for that new truck. Ooh. And he was mad. And in fact, he threw Charlie out of the house. So Charlie moved in with Bob and Barb. The fall was the first time that Carol noticed that Charlie was possessive. He wanted her to quit her babysitting job so they could spend more time together. He gave her a bank card to his bank saying that if he ever got in trouble with his gang, you could have all my money. Hmm. He also then got his own room at the tenement house. But it was really annoying for Carol because if she stopped by to visit her grandmother, there was Charlie knocking on the door. Hi, Grandma Pansy. Can I help you with anything? Oh if God, she went yeah. to go talk to Barb and, Char uh, you know, he would just show up, unlock the door because he had a key to the place. Hey, Bob, let's hang out. Like, Look, Carol was just like, you won't leave me alone. Look, dude, I need my space, okay? There's you and me time, which is cool, but I also need my me time, which is also cool. He he kept telling those weird stories about how he was going to, like, he, he came from Texas, and he was born in Texas, and he's a sheriff back there, and he was going mm. back. And he also would talk about how they were going to make all this money, and he was going to take Carol away from everything. And Carol was like, stop. You're a garbage man. Nobody makes hundreds of dollars as being a garbage man. Carol did actually quit her job, but it had nothing to do with Charlie. Apparently, she had been watching the children, and the father of the children came home, and he made a joke saying that Carol looked pregnant, and she got so offended, she told the mom that she never wanted to see him again. She was like, that's disgusting. Ew, I would never. <laughs> I would never have a child. <laughs> that's She's disgusting. only 13. I she know, was just I like, know. she was like, ill. What are you talking about? I'm ill. Who does I'm that? Gross. <laughs> and I she was it. like, listen, I'll watch your babies, but I don't want to talk to your husband anymore because I don't like him. He's disgusting. And the lady was like, I will find another babysitter. It's all right. That's funny. Well, now Carol's evenings were all open, and Charlie was like, great, I get to see Carol whenever I want. No, because Carol still wanted to hang out with her family. Yeah, I need my me time. Damn it. <laughs> Charlie had gotten to a place where he really wasn't talking to any of his family except for his brother, Rodney. And he was spending like all of this money on Carol to the point where some days he wouldn't have enough money for his rent. And the local uh, and May who owned the tenement house would lock his door so that he couldn't get in mm -hmm. to his room. And so he'd have to sleep in his car at a local service station and use the bathroom there in the morning to clean up before work. Then in December, he was living like I'm telling you, the, the fantasy world was like full lock here. He went back to his old job at the paper company and he told everybody there that he was going to be a dad soon. And he was so excited that his girlfriend, Carol, was pregnant. Carol and Charlie had almost never been alone. They were she was never pregnant by him. Yeah. In I fact, I don't think she has ever gotten pregnant in her whole life. Oh, my God. So the first murder happens on November 30th, 1957. The victim was 21-year-old Robert George Colvert. Robert had recently left the Navy and worked at the service station that Charlie often slept at when he couldn't make rent. 
All the police knew at the time was that Robert had been found on Cornhusker Highway with a shotgun blast to the back of his head at close range. They determined that somewhere before between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., which was Robert's shift, someone came in to steal stuff. The killer had stolen $160 from the register and another $66 off of Robert. Since Robert was new at the job and didn't know the number to the safe, most of the money who that was there had not been stolen. That was just the day's take. So I'm going to lay this out for you. So December 2nd, 1957, a consignment store owner named Catherine Kemp calls the police and she's like, hey, that uh, that case that just was in the news, I heard it on the radio today. How, what kind of denominations were stolen? And the police officer was like, well, lots of them. And he was like, it was everything, like even like silver and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, listen, this young man comes in all the time and normally he never spends more than $2. But today he spent a lot. She told the police he looked like he was between 20 and 26 years old. He had freckles, red hair, and broken glasses. Now, the officer brought him a bunch of pictures of people who had been arrested. But here's the problem. Charlie wasn't in his 20s. So the police brought her pictures of people who matched her description. He didn't have the right photos because Charlie was only 19. He had just turned 19. Yeah. December 3rd, Charlie shows up at the tenement house, pays all of his back rent to May Holly, and her husband's like, where'd you get all this cash all of a sudden? And Charlie's like, well, I had to use all my savings. He was also wearing all brand new clothes. Hmm. He went to his parents' house that day, visited his mother, Helen, and dad guy. Helen was so excited because she hadn't seen him since he started dating Carol because he was obsessed with Carol. Right. In the meantime, Carol's busy getting ready for Christmas. Marion had spilled that he bought Velda a washing machine, and so they were all very excited to see Velda's face when she got an indoor washing machine. Which is awesome. Also, Carol was like, listen, that's going to be great for me, too. I don't have to bend over a wash basin. She had bought play dishes for Betty Jean. She bought some new things for the baby that Barb was going to have. Meanwhile, Charlie paints his blue Ford black, changes the interior, makes it red. Yeah, probably because there was somebody in the car, you know? And there might have been blood on the car, huh? Not not because the blue Ford could have been seen near the murder scene or anything. Right, yeah. Uh The month of December came and went. Charlie gets away with it. Later on, we would find out that the reason why he got into the argument with Robert Colbert was because Charlie wanted Robert to sell him a stuffed animal on credit. And Robert was like, we don't sell things on credit at this store. Regardless, um, Christmas came. Everyone loved Velda's reaction to the new washer. She said this is the first time she was excited to do laundry. Um, Carol loved having her sister there for the holiday, but was pretty sad. She kind of missed the old days of them sharing the bed together. But everybody was super excited when little Bobby Von Bush was born on December 30th, 1957. Yes, Bob Jr., little Bobby. Little Bobby Bush. Uh, That same night, December 30th, they all went to Charlie's uh, 
they were all at the tenement house. They visited Barb and her grandma and May and Orlin. Orlin even took a picture of them together. Uh, you know, and he was like, look at the happy couple. Mm. And uh, Carol was kind of like, mm, I don't know if we're a happy couple right now. <laughs> um, honestly, the night went well until Charlie like went off again, talking about how he was going to go back to Texas and be a sheriff and catch all the bad guys. And Carol was just, at this point, she was kind of weirded out when he went on these like weird fantasy talks. He told Carol that he was tired of hauling other people's trash and he wanted to go make more than $42 a week and he was going to run away with Carol and they were going to go to Texas and be rich. Carol absolutely loved Charlie, but she was growing tired of the quirks. He wanted to know everything that she did every moment of the day that they were apart. Oh my God. He was especially interested in if boys talked to her while she was at school. He talked about how Carol was the only worthwhile person in the entire world. And Carol was just starting to feel trapped. A couple weeks go by. Charlie gets fired from the garbage company for telling a customer to go to hell. Oh my God. Come on, dude. The garbage, the, the guy who owned the garbage company was like, listen, the only reason why I hired you is because your brother was here and your brother's a dope guy. So, mm-hmm. but I'm sick of this. People complain about you all the time. Um, on Sunday, January 19th, 1958, things kind of went bad to worse. Charlie showed up unannounced to the Bartlett house while they were finishing up dinner and the you know women were cleaning in the kitchen. Carol wasn't in the best mood at the time. And here was sour face Charlie, also in a terrible mood because he was fired. And Charlie started questioning her about the boys from school. And Carol was like, I'm no go leave. If you're in such a bad mood, go home. Right, yeah. And he was like, I'm not leaving. So Carol was like, I want you to get out and not come back anymore. I don't want to see you ever again. Velda tried to kind of quietly just be like, listen, maybe come back in a couple days, you know. um, Give her some space. Give her some space. And just before Charlie left, he was like, are you serious about never seeing me again? And she said, yes. And then she ran into her room and cried. No. Everything was really quiet in the Bartlett house until January 21st. Velda woke up, got coffee and food made for made for the household, read the paper quietly. Carol went to school. The family took Betty Jean to visit Pansy. They were planning a really big family gathering the following Saturday. Charlie volunteered to help Rodney with his garbage rounds if he agreed to let him borrow his 22 rifle. He said, now he told Rodney he was going hunting with Carol's dad, Marion. So Rodney dropped Charlie off back at the tenement house around noon. Now, 12.30, Velda, Marion, and Betty, Jean, leave Barb's house. They won, uh, Barb, like, Marion needed to get sleep because he was working a night shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the family was really surprised to see Charlie standing in the hallway outside of his door with a rifle. His door had been locked again by May for non-payment for January. At 1.20 p.m., Marion, um, I guess he must have dropped the family off at the house and then gone to the local Safeway, which is, I didn't know Safeway had been around for so long. But he saw one of his coworkers, the grocery store. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. <clears throat> I know what it is. I was like, damn, <laughs> that is right? a long time. <laughs> I didn't know Safeway had been around for so long. Now, this is poignant because the woman, the coworker who he saw at Safeway, her name was Virginia Robson. And when she got back to the office around 2 p.m., she got a note from another secretary who covered her lunch shift saying that Marion Bartlett had just called and said he wasn't feeling well and wouldn't be coming in that night. And she had just saw him 40 minutes earlier. 
Now, that phone call had come from the Bartlett house, and Charlie Starkweather had absolutely stopped by to talk to Marianne. And Marianne had absolutely enough with this weird guy and demanded that Charlie stay away from their home and leave Carol alone. Which is when Charlie shot both Marianne and Velda and then strangled and stabbed two-year-old Betty Jean. Then while Charlie waited for Carol to come home, he dragged her family's bodies out into the backyard, cleaned up the house as best he could. He eventually stored their bodies in the chicken coop. When Carol walked through the door at about 3.30 that afternoon, Charlie, pulled, he, had pointed, he pointed a gun at her and was just like, sit down. Carol was like, what are you doing? You're like, whatever. Like, you're not being serious. Like, what's wrong? She honestly laughed at him until he slapped her and shoved her into a chair. He told Carol that her parents were safe, but they were bound and they would stay safe if she agreed to go with him willingly. He told her that his gang was watching the house and if she tried to run away, he'd kill her family. Now, Carol wasn't sure if this was just Charlie rambling again or if this was real until she noticed that Charlie had her mom's pistol on his belt. He spent the night rambling on and on about how he killed a man at a gas station and at one point giving Carol the pistol and being like, shoot me. Okay. The next morning when her classmate Bonnie stopped by to walk to the bus stop, Charlie threatened to kill her. So Carol was like, I'm sick. Don't come back. Charlie spent most of the day telling her that if she stepped one toe out of line, he'd call his gang and her parents would be killed. So Carol did whatever he asked. If he wanted food, she cooked it for him. She got the mail, fed the dog. When Rodney, his own brother, stopped by, he was like, if you let him know what's going on, I'm going to shoot him. And she's like, you're not going to shoot your brother. And he's like, yes, I would. Um, <sighs> so Carol ended up stepping outside and being like, I don't know where Charlie is. We're not together anymore. And Rodney would later on tell the police that Carol looked visibly ill at this point. This went on for the next several days until Friday, January 24th. Carol actually spent three days in isolation with him as he ranted and raved about different things. If he left the house, he would tie her up. If she had to go to the bathroom, he watched her. When other people came to the house, she told them that Marion was ill. He wouldn't be back to work until Monday. My mom's sick. She, she, he told her over and over again, if you let anyone in this house, I'm going to shoot them. On Saturday at about 3.30 p.m., Carol saw her sister walking up the sidewalk with Bob and Bobby because Carol didn't know that they had planned to have a family gathering there. Right. right. Carol stepped outside and yelled, everyone has the flu. Go away if you know what's good for you or mother will get hurt. That last line really stopped Barb in her tracks and she ended up sending Bob and Bobby back to the car. Barb's like, I want to see my mother. I want to see our mother. Carol like frantically screamed like, you know, the baby's going to get sick. It's going to die. Barb was super confused, but she got back into the car. Charlie made her go back out into the rain to try and talk to them again and, like, calm them down. By the time she got to the car, she was, like, crying and she was apologizing. And then she ran back into the house. Bob was like, something's wrong here. Yeah. As, well, one, he was like, it was weird when he drove up because all the curtains were closed. And he said that Carol was acting real weird. Her hair was disheveled. She hadn't combed it. She looked exhausted. Rodney stopped by and the two went to the police station to talk about what they both experienced with Carol. The police offered to send two men out in about a half hour. So at 925, Donald Kaler and Frank Sukup arrived in the block where the Bartlett's live. They walked to the door and Carol came out. She was wearing like a house coat and she's just like, what's up? And he's just like, well, you turned away your family members. And Carol was like, listen, everyone's violently ill with the flu. That's why I'm turning people away. 
And then she was like sitting there talking, like she's like, "Listen, my bro- brother-in-law doesn't really like our family, so that's probably why he's calling the cops on us." And here's the thing, though: Bob and Rodney weren't sure the police were going to do what they were supposed to do, so they were out on the street hiding, watching. Mm-hmm. Bob was definitely confused to hear Carol tell the police that Bob didn't like her family. Right, Bob is the best. It just set off more alarm bells. So then after the police left, he went to the door and was like, I need to pay him your mom because she did our laundry. And Carl was like, please don't come in or my mom's life is going to be in danger. Charlie tied her up, called Bob and Rodney from Tate's Kanoko station and asked for a ride back home and to pick him up on Cornhusker Road. The two men went to the uh, gas station and Charlie wasn't there. Charlie then called Bob told said the whole family was sick and that he had gone to get groceries for them. That was also the night that Charlie tried to rape Carol, but he couldn't sustain an erection long enough to do it. Sunday, January 26th, uh, LaVita Starkweather came to the house looking for her brother. Carol told her that Charlie said he was going to rob a bank with his gang and he had her family held hostage. Like she really was like trying to whisper it to her when Mm -hmm. there was literally like Charlie had taken her father's shotgun, sawed it off and was standing like next to the door with the shotgun pointed at her. And she's like, he has a gun. He's going to kill me and my family. And like LaVita couldn't really understand what was happening. She only heard like part of it and it was really cold. So she was like, whatever, I'm leaving. No, no, whatever. No, no, whatever. (laughs) So Charlie was like, I'm so sick of these people coming to your house. Why are there people here every freaking day? Because so people he... like my family. People like they, they like to see my family. OK, we, we like, what do you mean? We're not assholes. Well, so he had her write a note. And so she wrote on the note, stay away. Everyone is sick with the flu. Miss Bartlett. And she underlined Miss Bartlett a bunch of times and taped it to the door, hoping that people would understand that Carol is a fugate. She's not a Bartlett. The only Miss Bartlett in that house was under three years old. Mm-hmm. So it's Monday, January 27th. The sign worked uh, when her classmate Bonnie showed up at the door. However, Pansy Street was like, I haven't heard from my daughter in a week. This is unheard of. So Pansy took a cab out and she's like, she told us the driver to wait. It's 830 in the morning and she saw Carol standing in the living room. The door was open and Carol is just like, go away, grandma. Go home. Mama's life is in danger if you don't stay away. And Carol's like sitting there trying to like discreetly point to -hmm. Charlie who is standing in the next doorway with a gun pointed at her. Pansy didn't understand, but she was like, listen, she called for Velda. And she like, when she didn't hear Velda or Betty Jean, she was like, if you won't let me in, I'm coming back with the police. So as Velda drives away, Charlie's like, we got to go. Go get your coat. We're leaving. They went to another location to pick up his car. Um, they stopped at the service station. Carol tr- Carol was like watching the men who were like filling the gas up. And she wrote a note and put it like in her, in her pocket that said, help, police, don't ignore. But she was too scared to give it to him. Aww. When Pansy walked into the police station, the police were getting a phone call about a man with a young girl in tow who looked pretty fucking scared. And Pansy heard the description of the guy and was like, that's my granddaughter's boyfriend, Charles Starkweather. At the same time, LaVita had told her dad guy about Charles holding about Charles and saying that like, Carol said that Charles is there and has a gun and has her family hostage. 
Yeah, why so, wouldn't you like help her? Anyway. So Guy had called the police and was like, you need to go pick up my son. So kind of all <laughs> simultaneously, <clears throat> the police station, the Lincoln Police Department received like four different calls about Charles Starkweather and, and Carol Ann. Nice, nice. So two more cop car, two more cops come out at 10 a.m. All the doors are locked. They unlock the door. Pansy went all around inside the house. She couldn't find her family. They were like, we don't understand what's going on. There's no Carol. Now there's no nobody. Mm-hmm. Police are like, uh. So Bob was like, there's no way that they just up and go and they leave their 14-year-old daughter. And Barb was like, listen, like, maybe we should stay out of other people's business. And Bob was like, no. I'm going to go check one more time. Yeah, so he, he went up. Please. Bob went up to the house at 4 p.m. And when all the doors were locked, he walked around to the chicken coop, which is where he now found the like seven day decomposed Boom. remains of the Bartlett family. <clears throat> and of course, he lets the police go. So that hits the press immediately. And Enti- Bartlett family slain, missing 14 year old daughter, potentially with Charlie Starkweather. 19-year-old boyfriend. Yep. So that night, as Carol and Charlie are on the run, they stopped by a family friend's house in Bennett, Nebraska, August Meyer, who became the next victim. Charlie told August that the car was stuck. They needed to get something to pull it out. When August walked back into the house, Charlie shot him in the back as well. He dragged his body into a building on the property, told Carol to pick up his clothes. He also shot Meyer's dog. They ended up taking their car into the back roads and kept going because Carol was scared. Like He wanted to stay at the house, August Meyer's house. And Carol was like, but what if the ghost of August Meyer is there because you killed him on his property? And like Charlie was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And they kept driving. (laughs) Just coming from the man who thinks he's a freaking Texas Ranger. Just shut the fuck up. Listen, she's like, listen, Grandma Hitchcock talked to me about ghosts. And you just killed a man on his front steps. And you want to stay in this house. And you want to stay in that man's house. He's definitely an angry ghost now. He's definitely going to haunt your ass. I mean, 100%. They get stuck again. And as they are walking down the road, a couple stops to talk to them. That couple was Robert Jensen and Carol King. Robert was 17 and Carol was 16. Once they were on the road, Charlie pulled the gun to the back of Robert's head, directed them to a cellar that was part of an old schoolhouse. Down in the cellar, he took like he had Carol hold the gun on Carol King. Mm-hmm. So he had Carol Ann hold the gun on Carol King, and he took uh, Robert down into the basement. Now he told Carol that he was just going to tie him up and leave him there. Carol hears the shotgun go off. She's freaking out. He goes. He gets Carol King. He tries to rape Carol King, but can't do it as well. Impotent. Ultimately shoots her, leaves her like naked on top of her boyfriend. Later on, he would say that Carol Ann helped him, but she was like, I was in the car the entire time. Leave me alone. The two take the Jensen's car, though, and they he drives. Carol falls asleep while Charlie drives. By Tuesday, everybody knows about the Bartlett family murders. When Carol wakes up, they're sitting in front of a beautiful big white house near Lincoln, Nebraska, which is wild because they have kind of made a weird circle at this point. Now, this was the home of C. Lauer Ward and his wife, Clara. When Charlie walked up to the house, he stabbed their maid, Lillian Fenkel, to death, killed the dog, and then waited for the wards to get home. In fact, he made, like, he told Carol, wait, I'm going to take a nap. You tell me when someone drives up. Okay. 
Well, why, 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 why all the, the the dog murders? Why, why are you killing all the dogs? Because apparently the dogs be barking when you kill the owners. <laughs> yeah, no shit. You just let them run away. No, just... them dogs were running away. They were probably trying to bite back. How dare you? Fuck you, you dog well, killing ass people. Killing Carol ass did um, comply. And uh, Clara got home first, and she was also stabbed to death. And then when Lauer Ward came home, he was shot. Charlie would go on to say that it was Carol who stabbed both the women, and she helped him rob their home of jewelry, and then they stole the Lauer car, the Ward car, and went back on the road. Carol didn't want to be there. What are you talking about? Well, so the Ward and Fenkel murder is now huge because these are rich people. Mm-hmm. Police go door to door searching. The governor calls on the National Guard for them to help do a block by block search. And the same time, the community and police find August Meyer and uh, they think and Charlie's truck. So they initially think that they're in there. But when they breach the house, they don't find anybody. A farmer from the area hears about all this craziness going on. And it's like, um, you guys might want to go out to the old schoolhouse. I was just walking around this morning and I happened to go into the cellar near the schoolhouse and there's two kids in there dead. Mm-hmm. And he said that that was purely him just walking by randomly because it's an old building and he was just, you know, spelunking. Right. I, yeah. But January 29th, the papers are reporting on all of these stories and they are all connected to Charlie and Carol. Charlie didn't know that they were all over the papers. He decided we're going to Washington because I got family there. While driving through Wyoming, uh, now one thing he did hear was that the ward, the wards had been found. And he knew mm-hmm. he had to get rid of the ward car because that one the police knew about. So he dropped that. He go, as he, they stop to see this white Buick on the side of the road, he talks to the guy in the car and then shoots the guy through the window. That man was Merrill Collinson, and he had just been sleeping in his car. Later, Charlie also claims that Carol did this. Now, the salesman's car had a parking brake, which apparently was new in cars. And Charlie didn't know. Ah. And unlike now, where the parking brake is more like the emergency make the car smell funny button. Back what? then, listen, I have, I have witnessed this from other people where if they try and walk, if they try and drive with the parking brake, it smells like burning. But you can oh, still drive the car. Brakes, yeah, yeah. Like you can still drive the car, like mm. now. But apparently, back then, if you had the parking brake on, that thing wasn't going. And in fact, the car stalled as he was trying to drive away. Ha! Nice. So at this moment, another man pulls up on the road. His name is Joe Sprinkle, and Joe's like, "Do you need any help? Like, what's wrong with your car?" And Charlie like turns and threatens the man with a rifle. And it was at that moment that Sheriff's Deputy William Romer arrived on the scene. Just He just was driving down the road. And it's like, there's a man threatening another man with a gun. Carol, immediately seeing a cop, runs the police officer. And she's like, he's going to kill me. <laughs> Charlie hops in Joe Sprinkle's car and just drives off. This causes a high-speed car chase with three other officers, um, with William Romer, Robert Ainsley, and Earl Heflin. Um, <laughs> Joe Sprinkle just kind of waited on the side of the road with the, the sobbing Carol. This this car chase went well over 100 miles per hour um, until Charlie, until Earl Heflin got a good shot in. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it broke the windshield and some of the glass cut uh, Charlie. He ended up stopping the car and surrendering because he thought he was going to die. In fact, Earl Heflin was quoted saying he thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. He was a fucking coward. Yellow bellied. Now, some stuff happens next that I personally think is jacked up. Okay. So in a modern day and age, Carol could not be questioned by police without a lawyer or her family present. Right. First thing they do in Wyoming is while she is being like sedated because she's having a freaking attack, they have her sign a they have her sign a document. Now the document that they have her sign is extraditing her from Wyoming to Nebraska. The problem is you can't have someone extradited if they haven't been formally charged. Mm-hmm. No formal charge happened in Wyoming, so technically these papers were illegal really? from the jump. Right. Invalid. Uh, that, that first night they stopped in Garing, Nebraska and one of the sheriff, they like took her to one of the sheriff's houses. Cause they were like, we're not going to leave her in a prison. And one of the sheriff's wives watched her. Um, she was mainly sedated through most of the time. Um, in fact, one of the women said, I'm sorry about your family. And that was the first time that Carol even heard that she was an orphan. Mm-hmm. Carol was inconsolable and she actually screamed at the police like how that's, are they dead I did everything Starkweather right. told me to do that's right because he, yeah, she he said know. that they were tied up somewhere she was like how, how they can't be dead I did everything he told me to do they sedated her again she was visited by multiple doctors eventually they got her to Lincoln Nebraska the final day they handed her over to a woman named Mrs. Merle Carnap and Merle explained to her that her family was dead and they were dead before she even arrived home from school um, this happened at a mental health facility, um, which Carol was not fully aware of at the time. She didn't real like uh, she was she didn't know where she was or what was going on. Um, Merrill was one of the doctors tasked with kind of keeping track of her. Uh, Merrill Little said that it, some days she it was like she understood what happened, and other days she would be like sitting making dolls for Betty. Like, when I go back to my family, I'm going to give this to Betty. Like, she was just in shock. And, and like, it's it's unethical that at this moment, they decide they're going to interrogate her. Mm. Now, yeah, Charlie... Mind. Right. Now, Charlie is fully aware of his... He's aware of all of his faculties. He asks to be extradited to Nebraska because the current governor wasn't super fond of the death penalty. At first, Charlie said Carol hadn't killed anyone, but as they were interrogating him, he changed his story. Back in the hospital, they came to Carol with a new story from Charlie, and Carol was super confused. She was like, I never killed anyone. Um, Charlie also told the cops that he and Carol had had sex. They had sex every day. They had anal sex. And, uh, And when the doctor told her that, she told him that he was disgusting. And she didn't want to see his face anymore. And she was like, get out of my face with that disgusting stuff. Because let's all remember, she's still a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. February 2nd, Sunday, um, they told Carol that Charlie wanted to see her. And Carol told them, I'm scared to death of him and I don't want to ever see him again. And they were like, well, he might not believe that if you tell us that. So she wrote him a note that said, Charlie, I don't want to see you. I'm afraid of what I might do. 
that same day, Barb, William, uh, Barb, and then William and Dot came to visit. <sighs> the doctors rather unethically had Carol speak to a court reporter in the hospital. She gave them a statement. She was completely being led on by the doctors. They kept asking her, like, you knew this was wrong, like holding the gun for him. Did you know the gun had bullets in it? Like, I looked at some of these transcripts and it was it was really unethical on many levels um are you like you know that it's wrong to shoot people and she's like yeah it's wrong to shoot people but i didn't shoot anybody Yeah, i didn't do anything they definitely the problem is like this is why they tell you not to talk to police without an attorney present because they had her admitting to things that she didn't understand like Mm -hmm. she didn't know that the law in nebraska was it didn't matter if you pulled the trigger or not if you helped during the commission of a crime you are just as guilty as the person who pulled the trigger. So her saying that she helped by holding the gun on Carol King, they were going to hold the death of Carol King over her and Robert Jensen. Ah, okay. Okay. In fact, it wasn't until the day before her, her arraignment that they were explaining to her, this is a very serious charge. And she was like, what are you talking about? And he's just like, it's a really serious charge. It's, it's a capital murder offense. And she's like, what murder yeah i didn't hear anything about this what the hell are you right. talking about now this later comes out during her trial which is why i'm absolutely just what's the word flamoxed i, I don't know just completely shocked flabbergasted that, flabbergasted that like they definitely did not tell her at any point during this bit that she was going to be charged with a crime and you're supposed to let the person know that they've being charged with a crime but regardless we'll get to that when it's time to go to her court case They both get arraigned on February 3rd, 1958. They were both charged with premeditated murder during the commission of a robbery against Robert Jensen Jr. and both pled not guilty. Interestingly enough, they never formally charged Carol with the death of Carol King, even though they kept bringing her up during Carol's child. So why Um, would you bring it up? Yeah, I know what she meant. But they they brought it up to to make the jury like think about, oh, this poor 16-year-old girl, her life stuffed out. We'll get there. Either way. March 10th, 1958, Judge Harry Spencer appoints T. Clement uh, Guggen and William T. Metchelet to represent Charlie, who had now told the police nine different stories about what happened during the shooting spree. Version one, he said they did it together. Carol had even written a little note for the police that said, for police only, which obviously was not written by her. It was written by Charlie. Version two, he said Carol was his hostage the whole time. Version three, he said he killed Carol's family before she came home from school. Version four, he said Carol helped him a lot, but she didn't do any of the killing. Also true. Version five, he said he killed nine people, but Carol had killed two of the people. Version six, he said he killed the Bartlett's while Carol was in school, but he detailed the murders completely wrong that didn't match any of the forensics. Version seven, he talked about going hunting with Marion and that he'd gone back after Carol got out of school and that Carol was present when her whole family was murdered. Version number eight, he said that they shot Merle Collinson together on the side of the road. Version nine, he said, um, I'll be damned if I be sentenced for what I didn't do. Carol is the most trigger happy person I've ever seen. Some of these confessions were things that he wrote like on the walls of his cell. But regardless, Hmm. the Starkweather trial begins May 5th, 1958 and ends on May 22nd, 1958, was the biggest trial in Nebraska at the time. Cameras were barred from the courtroom, but writers were allowed to be there. His lawyers had had changed his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity, which upset his family. 
he got on the stand and he told them that he killed them all in self-defense, that Carol loved it, um, and the media ran with it. Many psychiatrists were called to the stand in support and opposition. Um, one of his his supporters was like, he's a wild animal, unable to premeditate premeditate crimes. Another one was like, I honestly believe that he does believe this was in self-defense because he has like a victim complex. The prosecution's doctor is like, listen, he's legally sane and he does have a personality disorder, but it's not bad enough that he would ever be committed to a hospital for any length of time. That one, that one. What? No, wait. I, I agree, I agree with the last two, honestly. I think that he was delusional. He did believe that the, everyone in the world was out to get him except okay, for yeah. Carol. That's and he, I don't think, I mean, he was able to exist in society. He was able to have a job. He did have minor delusions, but they weren't enough to really get in the way of everything. Exactly. Now, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Um, it's reported in the United Press International paper saying, I'll be glad to go to the chair if Carol will sit on my lap. Fuck off, you piece of shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, I'm Charles Starkweather was executed 13 months later, June 25th, 1959. And between the date of his sentencing and the day he died, he did everything in his power to try and have Carol have the same fate as him. Come on, man. Just. It's really sad because Carol tried everything to get the truth out, but no one believed her. Mm-hmm. She even wrote a telegram to President Eisenhower and was just like, listen, I didn't do any of this stuff. I was there when it happened. I do know that it was wrong that I was there. Is there any way that you can like get this changed? And the White House responded that um, it was a state matter and that the president could not intervene. She like she was held against her will. Like... Yeah. So uh, at 15 years old in October of 1958, her trial was held. Uh, the court of public opinion, however, had long judged her from the time that uh, Charles talked about her being hypersexual. Like, despite of being course, impotent, he I'm told not. everyone who would listen he had sex every day with her at her parents' house. There was no way she was going to get a fair trial or jury that believed her um, when the police didn't even believe her. And her lawyer, John MacArthur, who also wrote a book that I have used as one of the references here, in his book, he said he 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 shows the letter, and here's what the letter said: "Are you so bad off that you must sear your soul and lie and cheat for a murderer and a whore? Suppose it was your son or daughter who had been so brutally butchered without cause. How would you like for some fat old lawyer to take the case of the criminal and raise heaven and hell to clear that brute? Why were you the only attorney in the city willing to f- defend such a horrible girl? For shame! How can you look yourself in the face?" Be careful, or the judgments of the Lord will follow you and your loved ones for your dastardly actions. Let justice take its course, and you keep your big mouth shut. How can an attorney like you escape judgment? Better watch out. Signed, disgusted. Those are the kind of letters that he received. Newspapers ran constant headlines with the words of Charlie Stockweather. Um, Just one week before the trial, one of the jurors was making bets that she was going to get the death penalty. Which is the kind of thing that That's... should have a man removed from the jury pool. Yep. Get your ass out of here. Yep. Yeah. They they found out about that after the trial. And Carol's trial actually, her lawyer tried to get a mistrial, but it didn't matter. It was what denied. Why? Because everybody had it in for this little girl. So what is mistrial? That's, that's not okay. You can't it should have been that. a mistrial. She should have gotten a new trial because of that. But a lot happened here that was not on board. And I'm about to tell you about some of it. 
Mm-hmm. So the trial begins October 27th, 1958. Her lawyer tried his absolute best. He explained that, like, this little girl, she's in eighth grade, walked into her house and there was a gun in her face. And from that moment on, she just feared for her life for the next eight days. Mm-hmm. The prosecution brings up Jensen Sr. to tug at the heartstrings of the jury. They bring up the brothers of Carol King, heartstrings. The prosecution brings in the pathologist and the cops who go into grim detail about the, the bodies in the cellar. The cops who delivered her to prison did defend her and told the court that she was delirious. It looked like she hadn't eaten or drank anything in days. Um, One of them was like, she said she saw nine murders. One of those cops straight up lied on Stan and that Carol and said that Carol told him she'd seen him kill her parents. That did not happen. The sheriff's wife who looked after her that first night was like, honestly, she was terrified. She barely spoke, only mumbled and just slept for like 12 hours. Like she if I'm, she was yeah, she wasn't talking about the case at that point. But they mm-hmm. had, they all were coming up with like magical things that Carol Ann said right afterward. Like most of the time, within those first few days, she was heavily sedated by doctors. She should have like you can't, you can't consent to like <laughs> activities when you're under the influence. So I feel like it's it's highly unethical for you to be under the influence. And consenting to have a conversation with a police officer. Right, right. Like I said, if I'm honest, the prosecution was allowed to bring up a multitude of inane details that had absolutely nothing to do with the case. The judge allowed it over and over again. The one cop, Heflin, did tell the truth. He said that he had found a letter in Carol's pocket that said, help police, don't ignore. Now, that was the real letter, not the fake one that had been allowed at Starkweather's trial. Did they, like, match the, the you know, the handwriting? To- no. In fact, they had like days worth of arguments over the 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 new letter and and like when they brought Carol on the stand, they were like, "Well, which coat were you wearing when you had that letter in your pocket?" And like she didn't remember that when she had gotten to Garing, Nebraska, they had given her a new jacket mm-hmm. because the first jacket was covered in blood, blood and, yeah. and stuff. So she had switched out of it. And that is where Heflin had found that original note, but she didn't remember the blue jacket because she was drugged. The doctors from the institution were also cross-examined. Carol took the stand. They tried to trip her up. One of the big things that should have meant something to the jury is that, like I said, Carol was never told that she was being extradited for murder. She signed something while she was still drunk pretty much Mm -hmm. off of the drugs they put her on. She didn't know she was being arraigned until the day before. And they were questioning her while she was under sedatives. Also that she had never been offered a lawyer because she had never been told she was under arrest. It's pure breaking the constitution at this point, but they did not care. People were out for blood. Pete, the prosecution then, which should have never happened is they brought in Charlie to her trial. And he just told blatant lies on the stand. Lies that eventually the prosecution was able to bring when they were trying to get um, a, an appeal. They had another prisoner who overheard him along with two other people in his cell, his attorneys, mm-hmm. leading him on what he should say at Carol's trial. Uh-huh. Fuck but anyway. that, that appeal was also denied later on. Come on. One of the things that I was overwhelmingly struck by is I'm not sure that Carol would have even been charged as an adult in today's world. Mm -mm. She was 14. She was in eighth grade. 
And yes, she she always fully admitted, I did what he told me to. When he asked me to hold the gun on somebody, I held the gun on him. But she never, not once, in the last 50 years, has ever strayed from her story. Even when they were trying to trip her up at the hospital, she was like, no, I didn't kill anybody. But regardless... She was found guilty, given life in prison. Now, Carol's sentence would eventually be commuted in 1976 when the United States Supreme Court ruled that life sentences for minors are unconstitutional. She was a model prisoner the entire time she was there, and once it was commuted, she was released in 1976 after 17 years in prison at the age of 33 years old. She worked as a janitor, an orderly, and sometimes a babysitter until she retired Carol avoided almost all media until 1983 when she went on TV on a TV show called Lie Detector with a very famous attorney named uh, D. Lee Bailey. Her results were inconclusive when she said she'd been forced to go with Charlie, but Bailey ultimately said that the crimes were such a major part of her life that they would have known if she had been outright lying. Mm -hmm. For the first time publicly, Carol received some kind of empathy. She cried on his shoulder when he read her results saying, she said, you can't know what it's like to be a person in history and everybody hates you. Yeah. Carol went on to get married to Frederick Clare in 2007. They enjoyed uh, six years together. Well, seven years together until he passed in 2014 when they got in a car crash. Uh, Frederick died and Carol was seriously injured. She actually requested an official pardon from Nebraska originally in 1976 and then again in 2020, but it was denied. Um, both times? Both times. In 2020, some of Charles Weathers' family's victims supported her request for the pardon. She, main she maintained her innocence for her entire life, and the pardon was denied because they said the role of a pardon is to restore a felon's rights, not to absolve you of a crime, and the court assumed correctly that Carol was seeking absolution and a chance to be forgiven. And, well, you can't really get that from the justice system. <clears throat> Carol is currently 79 years old. She enjoys watching TV, playing slot machines. Some people in Lincoln, Nebraska still think that she did it. Um, Carol's stepsons, who read a lot of the same trap transcripts and court documents that I did, don't believe she was a willing participant. Um, they stand behind their mom to this day. The debate about her innocence still rages on, and uh, Carol's just trying to live. I, they believe she's still in Michigan. She has no intention to go back to Nebraska. And occasionally, um, like she was, <laughs> she babysat for a family, and one of the women worked with children. And she was like, Can you tell your story to these ninth graders? Oh. <laughs> and indeed, she did tell her cautionary tale. Just scared them straight. To the youngsters about wanting to be grown a little bit too soon and how it completely altered the trajectory of her life. Mm -hmm. um, one of the few people that uh, Carol Ann has, well, now Carol Claire, has spoken to is Linda uh, Battisti, uh, who wrote the book The Twelfth Victim, The Innocence of Carol Fagate and the Starkweather Murder Rampage. Uh, if you are someone who checks the bibliographies every week, there's a lot of books in this one, including, like I said, I got like, I mean, some of the books go back to the seventies. Absolutely love that. You can request documents from like <laughs> the national library <laughs> and things. You got to give them back, but 
still very cool. So yeah, that's my story about a a murderous oh. couple, as they were called. I didn't, I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like. Yeah, it's oh. At least they oh let her go God. eventually. Yeah. Oh my God, I did not like that at all. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's well, okay. Well, at least that one wasn't about you know. Wasn't Fred and Rosemary West level? That's true. That's true. Very true. It was just still. I don't know. Just, I don't. I don't. But yeah, know Carol why. never. She never leveraged her story for money or anything like that. She didn't want any attention about it. Of course um, not. But TC was one of the few people to get her to sit down and talk about her life. It's wild. <sighs> but great, great storytelling. <laughs> I still hated it, but I, great, good, good job. <laughs> Oh All right, God. what do you have for us then? All right, Brittany, tell me what's your what's your favorite kind of uh, horror genre? I mean, I I know like movies, yeah, or real like, life. No, no, like uh, movies. Like horror. I I know what it is horror horror. <laughs> what's your favorite kind of horror genre? Oh, zombies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll watch anything with a zombie in it, even the bad ones. Zombies, and then you like some supernatural stuff, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. I watch a lot of real, real ghost stuff. I just watched through the entire Holes or Files. I wish there was more of them. It's a great show. Okay. And now I'm watching Destination Fear. I haven't heard of that one. What's that? Well, okay, so that's run by. So that show is by a guy who won a competition that allowed him to be the camera guy for Ghost Adventures. And then after his time there, he got his own show. So he worked with Zach Bagans for a little bit. You know what? I would win a. I would want to enter like a contest like that just to be like just to get that exposure. And mm-hmm. so, you know. And now he I, has a whole show that has like six seasons. So I'm watching through all of those. Oh, nice. Nice. That's awesome. Okay. Well, today I'm going to go into detail about like an, a very interesting form of horror um, that's that's been around um, for a few, a couple of years, um, few years. I think since 2019, maybe even before then, like uh, starting like 2015, maybe. Um, and have you have you ever heard of something called analog horror? Analog uh, horror. Yes. How is it analog? <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, I'll I'll tell you. I'll explain. Do you so, mean yeah. like? Do you mean like? I recently watched a movie where people, um, went to a show like they agreed to sign up for like a horror weekend and mm-hmm. be put through an experience, like they were in a horror movie. Is that analog horror? That is like that horrible house that was in Tennessee, and then that guy had to move it out of Tennessee where he just like waterboards people. Uh, Okay, like that guy is that analog horror? Because I'm not doing that, none of that stuff. Nothing torturous, nothing like that. It's that guy tortures people for fun, yeah. Like that, whatever you think you mentioned before that. The movie, like, you, you, let, like the people got to have a horror experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something they didn't die or anything. That right? was a fictional thing, scared. but they like yeah. pretty much like put that lady through hell. Okay, maybe for funsies. For she funsies. didn't even want to go. 
But anyway, I'll okay. tell you about the movie later. Okay. <laughs> so so for Animal Core, you mainly see these these types of videos on YouTube. Um, or I, I've seen like one on TikTok, and that was actually pretty good. Um, I'll, 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 Not I'll like those cool little shorties. I love those things. Maybe. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Um, the little three-minute horror films or like five-minute films? Yeah, something like that. There are some that are very good. Yeah, something like that. Um, so if you haven't um, seen any... Yes. I watch Corey Kenshin's Super Scary Sunday or whatever they called. He usually watches a bunch of them that people submit to him. Oh, okay, so you probably have seen some of these videos. Okay, okay. They're great. I so, wish, in fact, um, that one that involved the lady with the lights and the thing that kept moving closer to her, and then um, oh. that that got turned into a real movie. It did from it did. that three minute, that little like two minute clip. Yeah, that was so I think that's one. dope that like people get the opportunity to you know sell that property and have it become a real film. Mm-hmm. It's it's really great. So, if you haven't seen any videos I'm talking about, or hanging anybody from the horror community to all you people listening um i'm gonna fill you in on it i'm gonna tell you a little bit about analog horror and i keep saying horror because it's (laughs) hard to say it is hard to say horror 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 i'm just going to talk a little bit about it and um, I gave you some suggestions on what to watch if you're interested in it because it's like some some of these videos, some of these series are just mwah, they're great. Okay, so let's start off with what analog horror is. And this one Reddit user, I was looking on Reddit, and this one Reddit user, it he explains it like perfectly. And it's, am I still recording? I think I'm still recording. I see the little red dot. You're good. Okay, cool. So top left of your screen. All right. I just left the page, so I just I had to tab. I have all my tabs open. <laughs> oh, as so, long as the tab doesn't close, you're fine. Okay, awesome. So basically what Animal Car is, it's it's a uh, it's an immersive media. So kind of like like you said, that movie with uh, the people that she experienced is like a horror movie. Um, it's immersive media and it's usually horror media. Um horror media it it, it it um it involves some sort of like protagonist right so like um, marky moo his little videos where you clicked and went to different videos based on your choices like to choose your own horror thing like he did yeah yeah, yeah something like that okay. yeah, yeah, yeah something like that um and and like something that that reacts to situations that like narr- the narrative use um analog horror it makes you the protagonist, like you yourself are the protagonist. You like that. It means that like you're the person who has to like connect the pieces, like Choose the puzzles. Choose your own adventure. Yep. And or and... oh my gosh, Tinder had one. I it, saw it was, that. I was yeah, playing, you I like that. Yeah, I specifically played it because I was like, I want to see who murdered everybody. I yes. I made the wrong choice and got arrested. But it was oh, no. super fun. I was like, this was really cool. I was like, I got- it didn't help me at all find a date, but it was a cool experience. <laughs> yeah, I did play that. Um, um, 
We need more of those. I really do. That was fun. Um, but yeah, it gives you like, like it, it just gives you like your own adventure. Like you said, choose your own adventure type of thing. Um, and is there like, let me go back to my notes. Now, when I first like started watching some of these series, I was like, ooh. So it's basically like, it's basically like, you know, th- those found tape uh, movies like uh, Blair Witch or uh, VHS. Okay, I was going to say, because I hate paranormal activity. I wasn't even no no, no. <laughs> VHS lovely great series. Oh yeah, VHS is really great. Um, you see the new one? Mm-mm. Wait, did we watch the new one? I'm pretty sure. Where I watched it, I know I watched it. It's on Netflix. It is. Um, and you know what? What? Um, but with with those, the stories, it's, it's already been told, right? Like you, okay. you just you just find a tape, right? But with analog horror, it gives you it gives you the story as you're what I don't I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain it like as you interact with it. No, no, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're so second it, guessing yourself, and you're telling me stop that. <laughs> it gives you the sense of, the sense of like oh shit, this could actually like be happening. Like this is like this it gives you like. Do you remember when briefly when like phone cameras got better? They were trying to make like augmented reality. Oh like, yes, horror See, stories on your that's, phones. That's part of it too. Are, do you story. have any that actually worked? Because the ones that I remember when they tried were not very good. No, if there's one that actually worked, I would love to play that. I remember Terror like sending me a link to to one of them, and I was like, "This one looks like shit." What <laughs> a play! Because it was like you go through your house, and you you know the AR is going on, and you're supposed to like hunt for ghosts and stuff like that. But well, now I have seen a short that's about an AR horror that becomes real. Like it was a short clip, and then I also watched a movie about how an AR horror clip became real. But so far, no real AR like phone game that fits. Yeah, no. Um, but yeah, it's it's like like I said, it just it just puts you into it, and with with the videos of the analog horror. They do like they do a great job of making the videos look real enough. Like I'll explain to you later what I mean by that. They make it look real enough, but then like throughout the video, it starts to deteriorate and it starts to become like very very creepy and unsettling as you as you keep watching it. And it's it's just like <sighs> like your, your skin just starts crawling <laughs> a little bit. Um. Non-analog horror. Now, oh, I said, I, my spelling is terrible. Now, <laughs> analog horror does use some like it does use some found footage clips, um, you know. But that's not like the entire basis of the whole video. Like it, you, you get some like little clips into it, but eh, that's about it. Um, <clears throat> so another great reason as to why analog horror is so scary. Is because it gives you um, a nostalgia feel to it. Okay, so what I, what I mean by that is okay. I'm, I'm gonna give you story time. Okay. <laughs> oh no no! Before that, it gives you nostalgia. So some some of the analog horror, like some of the videos, they 
they use like um, emergency broadcasting like system type of noise and stuff like that like as soon as you load the video you get that beep 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 that noise and then it gives you like the flashes the card of you know emergency blah 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 blah, blah all that good shit so you know, like you're used to seeing something like that so like in real life so that kind of like it hits you like ooh, wait is this real am i watching a real video or something like that but okay story time when i was a kid I used to I used to stay up all night, right? I, I used, especially over summer, I'd stay up all night, drink Mountain Dew, watch TV. That that was my shit. <laughs> and I I would I I would flip to this like flip through the channels to get to Cartoon Network because Adult Swim was on there, of course, um, and. I'd flip past this one channel that was like a a public, like you know, a public broadcasting uh, channel, and all it would have was like just cards, cards of words on it, and just they just like go by like a freaking what was a slideshow or a PowerPoint presentation basically, and you know it had some like nice mellow music playing in the background, blah blah blah. And it would tell you like events going on in your community, in, in our state of the, in our part of the state. Mm-hmm. Certain times during this broadcast, this guy would get on over the speakers, like he was talking over like a uh, truck radio, and just and just say shit on the station, and. Like, I just remember being creeped out by it because I was like, okay, first of all, this is, like, very jarring because it was just metal music. And then all of a sudden, like, this guy's voice, like, all staticky coming through the speakers. (laughs) What are you doing? I'm just thinking of, like, the music. Like, the do-do-do-do. Yes. Like, elevator music being on this channel. Yes. And then there's, like, a random dude. Yes. That's exactly what it it was like. Um, And... Okay. Okay. And and it, like and he would just like pop up and just like and I was just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and like like is this Mountain Dew doing something to me? Like it was just. Like, <laughs> <laughs> is this Mountain Dew doing something? It's doing something. It did something to me apparently. <laughs> me staying up late and it was like because I I slept in the basement too. And oh, that's not good. And it's just like, like me sleeping in the basement. Everything is dark, and just the TV on, and just like it was very creepy. And I did it on purpose to be creeped out, but it's still <laughs> got what you asked for. Yeah, I really did. I really did. Uh, okay. So see, now I want to go on Reddit and be like, "All right, folks from Central Pennsylvania, do you remember Channel X and the Weird Guy?" <laughs> who showed up in the middle of the night i bet you if this really happened and it wasn't a figment of your imagination I other people will show up i swear it wasn't it was not a, it wasn't a figment it's happened and it may you may have just been announcing some shit and i just didn't understand him because of the way he's talking like that but like it was real and it happened i remember it like anybody from PA, Central PA, who just stayed up all night, or you know, this would have been what, like the late nineties, early two thousands. 
early 2000s, I'd say. Let us know if you experienced that at all. <laughs> Millennials. <I'm sure. laughs> okay. So, so guess what I've been doing um, in my, in my research of analog horror. What have you been doing? I've been watching videos on YouTube. <laughs> uh, I was hoping you would have some links to give us. Uh, I got a lot. and We can I... put those in the show notes on the website. Oh, definitely. I can. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, but, you know, I've been watching a lot of these series. And there are a few I'm going to suggest to you. Okay. And, like... I'm going to go, well, the first one is, like, my favorite one, and the second one, like, anything below the first one, it's, it's, a, it's, I like it, but it's not my favorite, but it's, it's a really good, like, okay. story. It's a really good story. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word. Okay. So, the okay. first one I'm going to say is, uh, it's called a Gemini Home Entertainment. Like you Google that, go on YouTube, look it up. Gemini Home Entertainment. Um, Let's just open up a Word document and type these down. <laughs> so, the, this is like my favorite one, and I'll tell you why. What the first the first video, uh, it's called I think it's called Weird Animals. Let me see, what's it called? World World of Worlds. Weirdest animals. Gemini. Home entertainment. Home entertainment. Now, you're not going to spoil it for everybody, are you? No, 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 no. Of course not. No, no, no. (laughs) I don't do that. Come on now. (laughs) But, no, so I'm just going to talk about, like, the first video I watched. So it's, it's called World's Weirdest Animals. And I think it's, they, they do it out of Wisconsin. Okay. Is what the, like the I think that's what it is because it has the like the face the the side profile of a face on like the side of the state. I think it's okay. Wisconsin. Um, um. So anyway, it shows off like two animals. They're both birds. One's a freaking bird that has like puffer feathers that so it mates. So you know it does mating things. Um, the other one's like okay. a an owl, a burrow owl. I don't know what the first animal is called. I'm sorry. I don't know what the first bird's called. But the second one's like a burrowing owl. And apparently they burrow in the ground and make their nest. They don't use trees and stuff like that. Um, oh. But the second, or the third one, the third animal is called a, something like a, wit, a wood walker or wood creeper or wood stalker type of thing. And Sounds like a cool name. Yeah. So... With with each of these animals, it showed what part of the state it was located at. Mm-hmm. But for the third one, it said everywhere. Fun. Yeah, yeah, fun, fun, right? And then if once once you watch this video, you'll see why it's fun. Um, because it it kind of gets it gets weird at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns to like some type of home video type of thing. Ah, uh, okay. So for at first it was like a documentary, a short documentary, and, and <laughs> an then, animal documentary. Yeah, basically, and then it turned into some weird as home home uh, home video, right? Okay. And and basically, there's a cameraman who's stalking outside of a house, 
like with the camera and he's just looking inside, just videotaping what's going on inside. Oh, and he's the bird. <laughs> he's the bird. <laughs> <laughs> he called him a something stalker, didn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to get too far into that, but um, it basically it went into like what these things were and they were kind of like fake humans or people, things that impersonated humans and stuff like that. Um, oh, they're obviously uh, pigeons since they're not real. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And it's like the video just gets creepy after that. And like I watched like the whole series, and it's just like uh, it's just like not every video is the same, and it, it gives you different information. Excuse me, burp. And <laughs> and and. And it's just it's it's just very very uh, chilling. It's it's very chilling because, like I said, every every video is different. You don't you don't get used to it <laughs> at all. Okay. Um, second one, it's called Local Fifty Eight. So this one is like one of the one of the older ones, um, like made back in twenty nineteen, I think. Um, Local Fifty Eight. Now that one is supposedly based out of uh mason county west virginia um and this one is is when i say public access like tv stuff this is what i'm talking about local 58 um it it, it, they give warnings like in every freaking video uh and it, it can be from don't go outside or stuff about the moon don't look at the moon or um or don't it's it's just it's just weird because it's like don't look at the moon and then it deteriorates and then somebody like hacks into the system of like Mm -hmm. the the public access and it's like go outside look at the moon and then you're you're like what what am i supposed to do (laughs) Do it. Do it or don't do it. Do oh my it. god! But yeah, like local fifty. That's a good. It's a good one too. If you're just like, eh, it's a good one. Like watch these at night, please. Do it. Um, do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> um. So the third one, it's a it's a newer one. It was made back in 2021, and. If anybody knows about analog horror, or you've been watching YouTube, or you've been watching Markiplier, or uh, Matt Pat, or uh, Jacksepticeye, um, you, you've probably heard of this one already. And it's called the Man, the Mandela Catalog. I don't like that one. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's goes. weird, <laughs> it's and so it's weird. got like random religious stuff in it. it not a fan of that one. The first two it, I haven't heard of, but that's one I've actually seen, and I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, weird. It's weird. Like, I don't like it. Yeah, like Brittany said, it's pretty weird. Um and some of the first videos you watch of it, it's it it's kind of like a public access type of thing. There's a um, couple of them. Yeah, yeah. Um warning you about these these types of beings called alternates that are basically like trying to replace humans. And stuff like that. Um, now there are some like religious images in it, and that kind of like 
leads into like some of the lore of the story um which i'm not going to get too far into but it's basically like i don't know it's kind of like an invasion of the body snatchers type of thing yeah i do remember that part but yeah that's that's basically what it is um but it's it's a really really creepy creepy <laughs> videos and it's a creepy series but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're on like volume two now of the videos there's a lot of them yeah yeah and whew. <laughs> it's a trip it's a trip um i don't know next one i'm going to talk about it's called the walton files have you heard of this one yeah i think so okay it's it, i think matt pat's done this one as well um <clears throat> and it, it's it's basically like vh like every every one of these animal horror videos i'm talking about they're all like vhs type of style you know to, it's it's old deteriorating vhs you get the jagged yeah, lines and stuff it looks like, that. like a old video i know you're <clears throat> yeah. talking about so the Walton Files, it's kind of like a a knockoff of like Five Nights at Freddy's type of thing, and then it's just <laughs> this one's like the second one I like because it's it's creepy. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like a public access one. It's just it's just like creepy imagery is going on. Like it's like. Um, training videos for like uh, you know you're 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 being introduced to this new job. It's called Bonds Burgers. Is that the, the one with the burger place where it's bloody and there's ghosts and stuff? I, you play yes. it. There's like one where you actually play, and the burger place is haunted. Slash you're talking about weird. the cow one, right? Yeah, I think I might be confusing that with something else. Yeah, that's a diff- That's a game. That's okay. another game. That's that's a good one though. Um, but this one, now it's called Bond's Burgers, and it basically there's a blue rabbit he's, he's, who's Bond, um, based off of Bonnie from Five Nights at Freddy's. Ah, uh, um, that would explain and, why Matt Pat was interested in it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just it's it, it, if you want to be creeped out, um, and, I'll look, and look at some at, of these on YouTube's <laughs> and look at creepy animatronic type of like puppet type things, um. Check this out. Check it. Check it out. Um, now, last one. Last one. It's a really good one, and it's been around for a while. It's. I think this is this is the oldest one. I think it's been around since 2015. Okay. Um, and it's called Mystery Flesh Pit National Park. Nope, don't know that one either. Okay. No, oh, that's a good one. Um, like. You get so you get you get videos on YouTube, but on Reddit there's a bigger story. Like there's there's so much more to just learn about this. Um and basically it's a it, it's it's in the title of the you know, it's a mystery flesh pit. And, <laughs> and that's that's what it is. It's a a big ass pit of flesh. Hello, flesh pit. It's like I wish I could sing like we have pictures of it. Hold on. I'm gonna send you like one of like the flyers because <laughs> this one. Give me this one. Where Save. did you put it in our I'm chat putting, here? I'm I'm gonna put it in the, the. Oh wait, I can put it in the chat here. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, to the right. You see to the right where it says studio. Yeah, my phone. Like, yeah, on. yeah, we have our own chat. That's awesome. <laughs> Private. Private chat. Um. Wait, no, wait. 
doesn't let me send pictures. No, it does not. Whatever. I'll send it in Discord. But um, it's a mis- it's a big-ass pit of flesh, and it's like a... It was once a tourist attraction, mm-hmm. but um, as soon as 20... I think it's either 2007, 2007 or 2017, one of those, whichever ends with a seven... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Whichever ends with a seven. It's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's 20, uh, 2007. Um, and they closed it off mainly because of what the flesh pit kind of does to people. Um, if some people, they go there and they're like compelled to like worship this fleshy hole in the ground. Gross. That has. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's it's fucking gross. Um, you said you were sending it in the Discord. Where? Is yeah, I'm, it? I'm, 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 and my my computer's being slow. There it goes. And I'm gonna do, do, do downloads. And where's it at? It's in here somewhere. I'm sitting here staring at Discord, waiting for it to pop up. I am so sorry. It's fine. <laughs> I. Okay, where the fuck is that? Okay, I don't know where it's at. I saved it. I'm going to do it again. Anyway, I'm going to keep talking about it. <laughs> it's fine. You can send it to me later. Okay. Like I said, we'll post things to the... So people can see it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And basically, it's like this whole living organism that's in the ground. And it stretches from like someplace in West Texas to who the hell knows where. Because I don't think anybody's found like the, the exit to it. So it's it, it on this one page. It says a giant flesh channel opening through the earth, the earth's epidermis, dermis, hypodermis, and more. So All right. there, there's like, there's so many, and, and it's like, there are a ton of organs in this flesh pit. That does remind me of Five Nights at Freddy's. Well, the most uh, recent one. That was the Walton Files? No, I mean, uh, spoilers, but if you get to the, I guess, canon ending in the newest game, there is a pile of viscera beneath the facility that's oh, flesh yeah. and robot pieces. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and you see it when you go down mm-hmm. there. <laughs> it's weird. Is Any it sort of bits of skin and stuff is, I'm out. <laughs> I I feel you on that one. I, I definitely do because it's terrible to look at. Um, but yeah, like like I said, some people were compelled to worship this, um, basically because of what the flesh pit does to you. Um, they used to hold tours that people can actually go inside the flesh pit and like look at things and shit like that. This is all fake, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's, it's a, you're giving me this really happened vibes the I way know. you talk about it. I know. That's what that's what I'm trying to do. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh God. But yeah. And that's that's what these like that's what analog horror does to you though. It like it's they it gives you like the this is like visual creepypasta. Uh-huh. 
Absolutely. I like it. I think it's cool. More and... outlets of, you know. If you go, I swear, if you go on a Reddit, whoever is interested in this, whoever listens to this dark end of the podcast, um, if you go onto Reddit, look up Mystery Flesh Pit or Analog Horror. Um, it's a subreddit, of course. Yeah, uh, it sounds interesting. I'd like to find more to look at. Oh yeah, definitely. Just, just check it out. It's, it's really interesting, and and it's like something new that they give you because, like nowadays. It's like, like, none of these, like, I want to think about it, like, the movies that come out. Well, yeah, a lot of my, well, a lot of my horror friends in my, like, groups that I'm in complain. They're like, I'm sort of sick of seeing Michael Myers kill people every five years. Exactly. Like, I don't. That's why so many of us are interested in in international horror, because it feels like the American movie. Mm. Yes. Hollywood, they just want to make a quick buck off of a movie. Yes. And like these 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 series, even though like the videos are short, they are long series, but they they are they're really good for for what they do. And like I said, I suggest it if you want to be scared, want to like you you're bored one night, you're like, let me check out that thing Brian was talking about, this stupid analog horror shit. <laughs> I may have them. seen some of the videos, like one of them, but yeah. not known it was a full series. Oh, another one. It's called The Backrooms. I haven't looked into that one, but it's called The Backrooms. Um, there's a game about that one, too, I think, or someone made a game of it. Um, I love it. Yeah. But, Sounds yeah. a good creepy evening. Absolutely. But yeah, that's that's basically what I got <laughs> for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, if you find yourself wanting to spook yourself. Sounds like a good time. And thank you all so much for listening. As usual, you can support us through our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash when killers get caught, or you can buy a shirt. There's lots of perks to, you can even get discounts on merch through the Patreon. Or you can just go directly to the merch. You can get yourself a fine mug. (laughs) Fine mug (laughs) and a fine hat. A fine hat. Yeah, because it's still cold outside. Yeah, we got long sleeves. We got short sleeves, depending on what part of the world you live in. This is true. And just thank you so much for listening. Thank you for those of us who are here always to the end and are so nice to us. <laughs> we appreciate you. Really, really do. All right. Have a good Have weekend. A good weekend.